Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. This is the story of a man who combined business, entertainment, and showmanship. His product, you could argue, was himself, and he was awfully good at marketing it. Detractors have called him a huckster. Admirers thought he was brilliant at business. But this man's genius for self-promotion was like nothing you've ever seen. Well, maybe you've seen something like it, but it's rare. He built himself an over-the-top place to live, gaudy, incredibly luxurious, and he had his struggles, perhaps the most notable being that he ended up in bankruptcy. Fortunately, though, he found a new career in politics. Stephen Mim has edited a new book about this man, P.T. Barnum, who helped shape how we see entertainment and public figures today. And he was also, by the way, on the cutting edge when it came to promoting fake news. Mim is an associate professor of history at the University of Georgia and the editor of The Life of P.T. Barnum. He says that by the late 1800s, Barnum's fame eclipsed even that of presidents. As Ulysses S. Grant discovered, when during his retirement, he went on a world tour. He comes home and, and Barnum has a conversation with him and says, you know, you, I'm sure everyone knows who you were. And he says, no, no, they didn't. But they knew who you were. <laughs> everyone asked me about you, Mr. Barnum, you know, and, and what you were up to. You are known. And, and shortly after that, Barnum liked to tell the story about how he got a card that said, Mr. Barnum, United States. And it had been sent from some obscure nation in the distant Far East. And that's all that the, the postmasters needed to know. They knew who he was. They knew where he was. So how did a boy who grew up farming in rural Connecticut become P.T. Barnum? Mim says he was hungry right from the get-go. Hungry for fame and hungry for cash. So he moves to New York City and he starts scrambling around trying every imaginable vocation to make it rich, quickly, ideally. And eventually he settles on the idea of promoting entertainments. And he settles on a very curious and rather unusual entertainment. Hmm. He finds a woman who is a slave who claims to be George Washington's nursemaid, which would make her 160 plus years old. Wow. Of course, she's a fake. Right. And he thinks she's probably a fake, but he also thinks that she's going to be fabulously entertaining. Hmm. And so he crafts a kind of cult of celebrity around this woman whose name was Joyce Heth, and she participates in this, mm. and he begins to exhibit her as the the link to the revolutionary past, the, mm. this woman who can tell stories about George Washington and, and who is, in her personal appearance, seemingly very, very old. And, of course, everyone is wondering, is she really what she says she right, is? Right, right, right. And, you know, it's not just this one person. He creates this whole thing called the American Museum in New York City. If you went into the American Museum, what would you see? When did it start? Like, what was this museum about? Right. So the answer to that is, what wouldn't you see? In other (laughs) words, it was a place that had things that we don't normally view as being compatible in a museum. It would have stuffed animals, you know, taxidermy, for example. Mm -hmm. It would have perhaps artwork hanging on the walls or meteorites. But it would also have freaks, people who were physically deformed, perhaps, who would perform for audiences. It would have morality plays that taught people the evils of drink. It would have a wide range of entertainments, both didactic and also vaguely fraudulent, all under one roof and all relentlessly promoted by 
its owner, P.T. Barnum. And how did he get the money for this? And why did he think that people would be interested in seeing he had incredibly short people, incredibly tall people, you know, like as you, Siamese twins, all these sorts of very unusual right. things that you might not come across in your daily life. How did he get around to doing this? And, and how do you think people would be interested in it? So he started this purely by pluck. He basically thought... It's a complicated story, but he managed to persuade enough people to loan him the money to buy a failing, much smaller version of this American museum that had existed. And he put all of his chips onto this. And then, and this is what's key to understanding him in a much broader sense, began to relentlessly advertise it. Now, that to Mm. us seems... Obvious. Right, of course right. you would advertise it. Right. But at the time, the idea of advertising something, of flogging it relentlessly, of handing out handbills and putting up posters and putting in notices in the newspaper, that was considered a little tawdry and, and maybe also just not necessary. Mm-hmm. But he... He, as he liked to say, said that advertising was a lot like medicine. You know, really small doses <laughs> wouldn't do any good, but really large doses might actually have the desired effect. And so he promoted this museum. He set it up so that you could see it for many blocks in lower Manhattan. Huh. He bathed it in, in light, limelight, hmm. and put up enormous uh, gaudily painted uh, canvases highlighting the wonders within. In other words, he made it a, a destination, the brightest spot in the brightest city of the United States. Now, the other thing, though, he did, and this is very noteworthy, is that for him, advertising blurred into a larger field, what we call public relations today. Okay. So that he was interested in stirring up not merely knowledge or awareness of what he was selling, but also creating fake controversies that would in turn generate more interest. Right, right. The the idea that no publicity is bad publicity. If you can just get your name out there, you've already won. Exactly. So, So, for example, with this slave woman who was claiming to be George Washington's nursemaid, as sales started to drop off, the ticket sales started to drop off, Barnum did a very clever thing. He started to insert columns in newspapers that were fake, claiming that Joyce Heth, this woman, was not in fact a human being, but was in fact what we would call today a robot. It was all an elaborate fake. Of course, it was already a fake, but now he was doubling down on (laughs) this. And so people suddenly flooded back in because they thought, well, maybe she is an automaton. I, right. I hadn't thought about that. And right. so they started to go and look and scrutinize. And, and, and then he waged these imaginary wars in the newspapers between various fictional experts as to whether or not this was what it said it was huh. or whether it wasn't. Uh, and he repeated this trick multiple times over. He did this again with something called the Fiji mermaid, which was not a comely mermaid, but rather a <laughs> monkey Shocking. fish not, hybrid. It was not a mermaid is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> right. Definitely not. Okay. And he, he admitted that in his memoirs. Okay. But he also, well, of course, promoted it as these half-naked women mm. in, in water. And, of course, then people would show up and see instead this monkey fish. But he did the exact same thing there where he had experts feuding, claiming that it was fake, claiming that it was real. 
And of course, this just stirred up immense publicity. This right, became the right. thing that everyone talked about. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Stephen Mim, an associate professor at the University of Georgia, editor of the book, The Life of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. Um, so this American museum that Barnum opened, uh, he opened in the early 1840s. Uh, America was still, at that time, obviously a very young country. And I just wonder... If this is a guy aiming at the broad middle class and tremendously successful and tons of people are coming through his museum, how much was he shaping, for good and for bad, Americans' view of what the world was like? Because this was somebody who was putting on display people from China. Um, He put people from Fiji who he claimed were cannibals. I assume they were not cannibals. No. um, no. On display. You know, but he was showing museum goers all kinds of things and people that they had not seen before and maybe sort of falsely shaping their idea of like what the world out there was like. That's absolutely correct. So he's teaching people, not self-consciously, but a lot of what people are seeing are going to reaffirm already their existing stereotypes, say, of the Chinese Mm -hmm. or of, of people from Africa or the South Pacific, wherever. Right. And so there's a lot of casual racism that is shot through a lot of these entertainments. Probably most infamous was an entertainment that he called the What Is It, with a question mark at the end, which was a deformed African-American man who he sort of portrayed as a potential missing link. Um, And this was right after the the publication of Darwin's On the Origin of the Species. And so he is, without a doubt, he's no saint. He is engaging in a kind of trafficking in culture that is going to distort or or rather solidify a lot Mm -hmm. of people's prejudices. Mm -hmm. Now, the flip side of that, if I can go down that road, is that the story with him, as it always is with him, is more complicated. So, for example, he was someone who had a kind of typical attitude towards slavery in his day, which was he didn't think it should be abolished and he didn't really care. Mm-hmm. In the 1850s, his American Museum started showing adaptations of Uncle Tom's Cabin, mm-hmm. which was a classic abolitionist novel right. that was turned into a theatrical production. And right. he basically took out all the radical elements of it and made it into like a uh, an apology for the South. Interesting. Because in some ways, I think of Uncle Tom's Cabin as a book that changed a lot of minds or that right. was meant Exa- to change a lot of minds. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And so and so here he is like basically defanging it. Mm-hmm. But his wife was an abolitionist and he, for a variety of reasons, actually came around to that position huh. and then began staging productions that were abolitionists mm. and in the Civil War became one of the staunchest unionists in New York City. Mm. And later in life, right after the Civil War, ran for office as a Republican in Connecticut in the state legislature and gave probably what was the highest point of his political career, a speech passionately advocating the right to vote in the state for African-Americans. So it's this unusual journey of enlightenment, by no means perfect, but but also probably in many ways reflecting the journey of enlightenment that many Americans went through at this time. We've been talking about how he was, in some ways, this packager of celebrity. You talked about 
the woman who he, you know, pretended was the the nursemaid of George Washington, 160 years old. But he routinely packaged up celebrities. Some people, and you could argue, went on to be genuine in their own right celebrities. Um, there was a, a dwarf who he called Tom Thumb, um, right. who went on tour, an opera singer named Jenny Lynn. I mean, these were celebrities that he created, but then he launched them out into the world, it, very much like reality TV, like somebody might start out as a minor character and then they become like their own character. Absolutely. That's and that really is where we see our own world refracted through his life. Mm-hmm. Because at these two individuals you mentioned, Tom Thumb, when Barnum first met him, Tom Thumb was a shy, tiny little child. Mm-hmm. And by the time he was done with him, Tom Thumb was a spectacularly talented, accomplished actor. And as you say, celebrity mm-hmm. known the world over. Mm-hmm. He was someone, he's sometimes considered, in fact, the first genuine celebrity, the first wow. person to kind of make that transition to be famous for being famous. Mm-hmm. And he was created, he was right. packaged by Barnum. Right. Now, Jenny Lind is an even more fascinating story in some respects because Lind had been a well known opera singer in Europe whom Barnum hired sight unseen for an American tour. Okay. And Jenny Lynn comes and he creates what we today would call a product rollout. He effectively prepares the ground for her arrival. He blesses various products that play off her image. So this is a kind of precursor to product placement. And he then creates a tour that rivals anything the Rolling Stones ever put together in the 20th century in terms of pageantry, theatrical spectacle, and of course, all of this being driven at the core by celebrity, by the figure of Jenny Lind, who he repackaged into a figure of generosity and beneficence, who also happened to have the best voice in the world, or so he claimed. And, you know, it was a success. It is hard to listen to the life of P.T. Barnum, a celebrity who was a genius at marketing, who made a ton of money in New York, who built an over-the-top house, who went bankrupt, who, it didn't matter, built up another career, who then went into politics, was elected. It's hard not to see some parallels with our current president. But you've said you're not like a huge fan of that comparison. To talk about like where you see overlap and where you're, mm, you don't really see it. So I think there's a tremendous overlap between our current president and Barnum. If you look at Donald Trump's career, especially as a real estate developer Mm -hmm. and a gadfly in Manhattan, there is actually a great deal of overlap. You know, these tales that Donald Trump, when he was younger, would call into publicists posing as other people does right. literally seem to be taken from the Barnum playbook right, right. of planting stories and so forth. Uh, you know, I, I, I hesitate to get too much into politics in a, in a kind of formal way, but Barnum's life is not a life defined by a kind of hardening of prejudice or a hardening or, be, or, or a growing conservatism. It seems to instead be defined actually by a growing progressive spirit. Mm -hmm. The other point, though, that I think needs to be made if we're going to talk about the comparisons is this issue of of business ethics. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, Barnum is sometimes held up as a practitioner of bad business ethics. And there's this phrase attributed to him 
that is not true that a sucker is born every minute. That's he did not, not actually say that. something. He did not say that. Okay. In fact, what he did view was that all debts had to be paid punctually on time, and he paid his way out of his entire bankruptcy um, by virtue of working it off hmm. and um, doing so in this kind of rather abstemious um, deferred you know, way of deferred gratification. He was someone who really genuinely honored his contracts. Um, people were more than willing to do business with him. And in fact, after he went bankrupt, the reason he was able to get back on his feet, because all of his former business associates helped him. Mm-hmm. They all were happy to lend him credit. He never done them. He right. never... They believed he was a good risk. They believed he yeah. was a good risk. Uh-huh. And I, I'm afraid that Donald Trump's business record is a little more, um, well, it's a little different. Stephen Mim is an associate history professor at the University of Georgia. He is the editor of the book, The Life of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. Stephen, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. One more thing about P.T. Barnum that has yet another Trumpian overlap. After Barnum's bankruptcy, he went on a tour of Europe and he gave a talk on the art of money getting. He initially thought the idea was ridiculous since, as he said, he was better suited to give a talk on the art of money losing. But Barnum's tour was a smash. And the art of money getting also came out as a book. 107 years before the art of the deal.